0: What if I told you that there was something so powerful just the sight of it was connected with better health? That people who visit it regularly are more likely to have good psychological health, and that it's even more beneficial for our mental health than green space. That its color is overwhelmingly chosen as a favorite by people around the world. And that about a third of people reported that their best ideas came when interacting with it in the shower. Would you want to figure out a way to harness that power in your projects? I'm your host, Meredith Campbell, and today's episode is all about water and its various forms and representations and how it can impact our well-being in the built environment. In part one, we'll hear from marine biologist and author of the book Blue Mind, a national bestseller. And in part two, we'll hear from the person who literally wrote the book on biophilic design. Her research-backed strategies for applying biophilic design to architecture are fascinating. And she'll challenge us to think beyond just putting plants in a space, although she isn't opposed to that. But before we dive in, here's today's CEU provider and sponsor, Delta Faucet Company, with the learning objectives. Today's episode is approved for continuing education credit through AIA and IDCEC. Later in the episode, you'll hear from Hannah again with instructions on how to
1: obtain credit for listening. After listening to today's episode, you'll be able to, first, point out what blue, red, and gray mind is. Second, identify how water affects our well-being. Third, implement blue mind methodology in the built environment. And fourth, apply biophilic design patterns.
2: My full name, Wallace J. Nichols. Everybody just calls me Jay. i I'm a marine biologist by training. I studied marine ecology. I studied economics. And policy. I love water. I love the animals that are in the water. And I've spent my life trying to better understand the ocean and the lakes and the rivers and the wildlife and to help them in different ways. And so I'm a scientist who likes to try to solve problems. But that's my background that got me interested in the wellness connection. It seemed like it was missing from our story in a lot of realms, not just in ocean exploration and conservation, but it was just missing in our schools, missing from the way we train health practitioners, mental health practitioners, designers, uh, interiors and exteriors alike. And so I have spent the last decade trying to update the story is the simplest way of putting it.
0: Can you explain what Blue Mind is and what research and history tell us about our connection with water?
2: Blue Mind is a phrase, two words, simple. It refers to a, a mildly meditative state that we move into when we're near in, on or underwater or representations of water. And we'll get into that a little bit more. Now, there's new science and a lot of new activity that backs it up and thousands, literally thousands of years of experience that also backs it up. So every culture... Every spiritual tradition, every sacred text refers to blue mind, all of them at some point. And so we've known this for a long time, but we say in the last hundred years took a different direction when it comes to the water story. We've taken out the emotional aspects and we've made it more of a commodity and reduced its value. And and what we know is when we undervalue each other if we undervalue anything bad stuff happens Um, in a relationship if you undervalue someone bad things happen happens with water too happens throughout history when women are undervalued bad stuff happens when a race of people is undervalued a group of people for any reason bad things happen same thing happens with nature and water Same thing happens with architecture and the built environment. When we undervalue special places, they degrade, bad stuff happens. So really part of this work is about fixing that value equation so that it's accurate. And so with our relationship with water, what Blue Mind does is it updates the water story. It fixes the value equation to be more in line with what we really get from a healthy body of water or depiction of that water. And then the goal is for you to understand your blue mind for life and then practice in some way. And then we want to take that role to 8 billion people. We want it to be common knowledge. Really. If everybody understands their blue mind has access to it and can practice it we will transform a lot of sectors. We'll transform wellness, but also design and environmental conservation will shift. At least that's my working hypothesis for now.
0: In this book, you really take us through the inner workings of the brain. And you said, when it comes to blue mind, there are neural networks that are shaped by your interaction with your environment. And because of neuroplasticity, we have the opportunity to reshape our brains throughout our lifetimes by changing the input and environment we choose, which is really highlighting the importance of place, how much place matters. Can you share a little bit about what you've learned about how our environments shape us for better or for worse?
2: We, we used to build offices and classrooms to be really efficient and functional. So you could like almost hose them down, small windows or no windows, um, thick walls, uh and we're, the research is incredibly clear we're not waiting for any research at this point that sunlight green space blue space movement circulation quality air it all feeds into not just our physical well-being but our emotional and our mental and our social and our spiritual wellness and guess what happens when you boost your well-being or your performance is better Creativity goes up. Collaboration increases. Problem solving. Things like courage. <laughs> these intangibles follow. If you're going to work every day in this windowless, darkish, weird space, that creativity and that collaboration, that compassion that you need to do your job well, that just disappears or evaporates. You have to manufacture it internally. The role of our external environment influencing our internal environment, really just, it almost sounds so obvious that it needs not be said, but it's the gap between the practice and the current state is pretty big. We're engaged in changing that. It's like shrinking that gap so that everybody knows this stuff, that all schools are busting out some windows and putting more plants around and getting the kids outside and in motion. So I said in in the book, I quoted another book called Brain Rules by a man named John Medina. He writes about how the brain works. It's a manual for your brain. He calls it Brain Rules. But what he says is we are at our best outside in motion, solving problems together. Outside in motion, solving problems together. That's the human condition at its best. But our built environment creates the opposite. Indoor, sitting in a chair or lounging on a couch, in case of my kids' online school experience. (laughs) We're indoors, we're not in motion. We may not be solving problems. We're just consuming information or doing a task. And there's very little social interaction. At our worst, almost. And that's how our institutions Both schools and offices are structured. And you can think of the worst case scenarios. Maybe you've even worked there or gone to school there. And so when you take John Medina's brain rules and apply them to your life, you can feel it. You can feel that you're more at your best. And so Blue Mind plugs into that from the water perspective, uh, the single most important feature of our planet. So it's not a niche conversation and takes it down that road, the blue road, I guess you could say.
0: We do have this research. Like you said, like we're not waiting on it. We know what makes people more productive, what makes them do better. And some of it's counterintuitive to the ways that we've often done things. I wanna talk for a minute about the opposite of blue mind that's described as red mind in the book. Can you talk a little bit about what red mind is and why the natural environment outside of our built environment provides such rest for our brain?
2: Red mind is a simple term like blue mind that refers to a more anxious, distracted, task-oriented existence. It's our new normal, I guess you could say. Red mind mode is the way you respond to threats. It's the fight or flight response. It's the way you grind and get things done and hit deadlines and compete. Really useful set of tools that we have. But if you're stuck in red mind, you will burn out. If you think you can just caffeinate, sleep less, and grind it out, you will burn out. But the good news is blue mind to the rescue. There are things we can do before we burn out. So gray mind is that, that burnout place. And some people toggle between gray mind and red mind. Like Their work and their life is full of distractions, full of bad news, full of triggers and traumas and symbols there of step off the roller coaster or out of the whirlwind and rest your body, rest your mind, because that will allow you to be better at all of the things you want to be better at or good at. Um, and that's blue mind. Blue mind refers to water, the role of water, the cooling, calming, contentment-inducing role that water can play. And so it's part of the toolkit, the mental health toolkit. And I have to say, blue, red, and gray are the cartoon version of complex mental health stuff, right? I'm very much aware that it is a simplification, a massive simplification, but it makes this conversation, gives it a a handle. So to be able to talk about it and speak to it with this color-coded nomenclature is really helpful for some people.
0: I think it's so important. I would even go so far as to say your creativity depends on it. Creativity is a human endeavor, not just for designers, but for designers, it's their lifeblood of their work. There are so many studies that show that creativity comes to you when your mind is in more of this kind of resting state, right? That it's not the office where your best ideas usually come.
2: Some of the most creative people that I work with attribute their creativity to water. And historically, there are so many stories. Einstein used to go sailing and get his brilliant ideas. Worked on a project with Pharrell Williams, the musician. He said he gets his creativity from the ocean, from the rhythm and being by the water. So people have taken their creativity and made wonderful careers of it consistently agree with this conversation. And then the science backs it up, which is cool.
0: Speaking of the value of water and those effects on our mind, you brought up a good point that not just these natural settings, but also the mention of water, the sound of water, seeing it in a pattern on the indoors. Can you take us through a journey outside in how water affects our minds?
2: Let's start from just your average red-minded place. We will all probably experience that at some point today where there's a lot of visual information. So screens, signs, built environment, there's background noises, maybe outside the window, there are sirens, maybe dogs barking. Maybe if you're at a restaurant, there's a soundtrack and 20 TV screens, and then your physical environment. So right now I'm sitting in a chair talking to you. I have a screen in front of me, another smaller screen next to me. My brain right now is somewhat restful. I'm enjoying this conversation. But I'm processing a lot of visual information, auditory information, not just in my ear, but also distractions outside. And then my brain is coordinating 200 muscles. And this is a restful moment. You usually bump that way up during the course of your day, walking to work, in traffic, dealing with coworkers, whatever it is. And that's our new normal. So now imagine you've made the decision to go find your water wherever you are. And you've pulled up on the map. You're like, oh, wow, I never noticed that pond is so close. I'm going there. And it's a quarter mile walk from your office or your home. Now your brain starts to shift to, I'm walking to the pond. So you have that anticipation. So that's a whole flood of anticipatory chemicals, maybe a little dopamine moving you there. You're thinking, oh, this is going to be nice, just what I need. So you're walking through some streets. Maybe it gets a little bit less populated. You get to the park, you see the pond, that first sight of the water, your brain goes, oh, water, right? Your ancestors at the first sight of water felt like, okay, it's going to be all right because they'd walked a long way to find the water because you need water to survive. So your brain deep down gets that hit. And then you move closer to the water and visually simplifies your world. So the screens are gone. I hope you don't have a screen in your face at this point. So the billboards are gone. And then there's a slight breeze and the pond is making little waves and they're lapping at the edge of the pond. So there's a sound of the water, rhythmic sound of water. And that's what you hear. So the voices, the distractions are either drowned out or absent. Visually simple. And you decide, hey, I do have my swimsuit on. I'm going to get in the pond. The water's nice. I'm just going to float. So now you get back all that somatic bandwidth. So visually, auditory, and somatically, you're floating on your back in the pond, looking at the sky with your eyes closed, effortlessly just laying there, breathing slowly, visually, auditorily, somatically, you get that bandwidth back and you get to rest, truly rest near and on and under the water. You may have decided you don't want to be in the water, you'd rather be on the water, so you get into a rowboat and you row out to the middle and you float that way. Or maybe you brought a fishing pole. Uh, Maybe you brought some binoculars and you're looking around for some birds and you're listening for their calls. And that's just a pond down the street if you're fortunate to have one. So as you go through that, you're experiencing a, a cascade of neurochemistry that's shifting you from more of a red mind mode with chronic bumps of cortisol and stress hormones to something calmer. It slows down your breathing, your skin temperature drops a bit, your heart rate slows and you shift into a different mind state that is inherently more collaborative, more creative, more compassionate. You may experience awe and wonder which are emotions that shift us towards empathy and compassion. Some really great research on the science of awe that suggests that it's very healthy to experience regular awe. And the number one source of awe on earth is water. Connect the dots there. You can walk through that scenario with your your favorite water that you can access. Maybe it's on a vacation or maybe it's just in your neighborhood. It can be a fountain can be a pool, can be a lake, a river, an ocean, a pond, uh, a cloudy, stormy day, a foggy day, that's all water vapor, clouds and fog, that's water, ice and snow, that's water, rain, rainstorms, light rain. It's not all about wild water. It's also domestic water in our homes, the built environment, but it's also urban water, so the fountains and waterfronts. And It's virtual water, the sounds, the songs, the poetry, the paintings, the films, the photography, and it's imaginary water. So the water that you close your eyes and think of, that maybe while I was describing the pond, you were imagining your pond or a pond that you've been to. And so the imaginary water is also really a useful tool that we carry with us everywhere.
0: You said this in the book, humans are surrounded by man-made buildings, objects, and environments, and it can become harder and harder to remember our intimate relationship with this beautiful blue planet. But magic can happen in the fleeting moments where we notice the natural world. Now, I know that people reported being happier in natural settings. They were in urban settings, not surprisingly. But knowing that this audience are creators of the built environment in both architecture and interiors, and in the spirit of bringing Blue Mind into what they do, to really think about this as a framework, can you inspire this audience to think differently as they're creating these places that we live, that we work, that we play, and that we heal? Is it possible to apply Blue Mind thinking or Blue Mind methodology to what they're doing And how can we make a difference?
2: Yeah. Designers and architects are really trained to move water away. It's all about controlling it. It's like a necessary evil, right? It will wreck the place. Leaks are bad. Ceilings and roofs, you just want to shed the water away from your foundation, off-site. just move it out. Understandably, that's the starting point. That's the tradition. Now, if you can do that elegantly, playfully, in a way that creates a cascade of some sort or little visible sort of swath of water, create a creek. We've seen some creative uses of moving the rain away. Obviously, there's all kinds of code issues and sanitation-related things that we want to adhere to. So there's that aspect that I just want to recognize that I am aware that this sector is challenged by that. It's real. So in, into that, while you're trying to move the potentially dangerous waters away or hazardous or destructive, what can you bring back and what can you put to use? And so you see designs that build fountains in, right? And so putting a fountain inside a building creates its own set of challenges. There's humidity and there's water quality. And again, there's maintenance and it's all that, but it's spectacular, it's transformative to a space. It's a good use of resources, I believe, because of the emotional and social wellness benefits that it brings. So you've got the domestic water that we're really talking about. So interior fountains, water walls, tubs and baths in design. And you're seeing this explosion really of. Design around sinks and tubs and showers and spas and that whole space is just really stunning compared to when I was a kid. When a bathtub was a bathtub and it was like a necessary evil, it was not the most pleasant sort of aesthetic. And bringing the delight what does a delightful bathtub look like and sound like and feel like and smell? And how do you? And it isn't just a super expensive endeavor, you can build that delight into it without a big budget and just how you outfit it. So there's that aspect. Then there's, we touched a little bit earlier on the the virtual water. Virtual water is not VR, it's not AR, it's not the metaverse, although it could be. But really what I'm talking about is any depiction of water where there is no actual water present, a recording of water, a recording of your favorite river that you play in the background when you're working and you want to focus. And it can be a generic river recording. There are a hundred different apps that will provide that for you. And there's a 12 hour long YouTube video that you can play literally straight through for 12 hours of ocean or rain or river. But my experience is the water that you've recorded is the one that has the most emotional valence because you were there. You can taste and feel it. The experience. So bringing the virtual water in through sound, through art, through sculpture, through photography. And there are so many different think- ways people are doing that. Some digital screens that are depicting these transmorphic kind of water imagery, then you walk into a lobby. But I guess the, the message that I would share uh, would be just do a deep dive into this blue mind thing and discover something new about your design work. I don't know what that will be, I have no idea. But I know if you tap into this conversation and just say, hey, let's let's try this, let's brainstorm, let's throw some things around, let's build some things or color some things differently or figure out a way to depict water and motion and blue mind in this space, you'll have a lot of fun doing it. <laughs> and there's a very high probability that it'll be beneficial to your work and the people that interact with it.
3: My name is Katie Ryan-Balagas, and I am director of projects at Terrapin Bright Green, which is an environmental design consulting firm in New York City. We focus on three main areas. One is building performance, the energy efficiency, water efficiency, but really looking at some of the dynamic and complex challenges that some projects run into because of the climate or certain policies or social issues they're really trying to overcome. And then the other area is biofilm design. So looking at building or site performance based on health and well-being indicators. So how does the design impact how you feel? Or how you perform or your mood and any number of health indicators. And then the third is what we refer to as bio-inspired inspiration, which is really looking at how nature performs. So looking at mollusks or birds in flight and understanding how they function and how we can design tools and buildings and materials that replicate how nature does it. But nature's been doing it for what, 3.9 billion years. So They're uh, much more effective than the human race at achieving those efficiencies.
0: To start out, let's get a definition of biophilic design. The concept has been around for years and many of us are familiar with it, but Katie explains how their view on biophilic design is completely supported by research and not just about aesthetics. Biophilia
3: is the innate connection that humans have to nature. And biophilic design is really From Terrapin's perspective, we really focus on the science and how designing, using that science, we're designing for our biological, physiological, like for us. It's not just about what looks pretty. It's not about aesthetics. It's not about changing the way we design necessarily. It's a lens through which we can make decisions, smarter decisions, informed decisions,
0: in their book, Nature Inside, Katie and her co-author share how experiences of nature in the built environment can fall into 15 patterns based on their extensive research. These patterns serve as a way to create design parameters for experiencing biophilia in the built environment. Here's Katie with more on what she means by pattern language and to introduce us to these categories. The framing of it as a pattern language, there's a couple reasons
3: behind that, or pattern, is something that instances of it repeat over and over again, but isn't, are never the same. There are certain characteristics that carry through in every example, but no two instances are necessarily the same. So that's why like it's a pattern and not like a formula. The 15 patterns are based on readily available peer-reviewed science. So we acknowledge that there are other patterns out there and some that we perceive perhaps are very impactful. But there isn't robust enough science for us to say this is true. This is the case. So we focus more on the ones that have that robust science. Uh, so the 50 cat- patterns are organized into three categories. Uh, nature in the space really focuses on that, those physical or ephemeral characteristics plants, animals, wind or airflow, light, water. The light is more dynamic and diffused light, it's not just the presence of light. When you think of these things, it's not just about an object or an element that's there. It's how do we experience it in nature? How can we replicate that in a space? So having light switches or daylight doesn't necessarily achieve that biophilic experience. It has to replicate what nature is doing. Um, Natural analogs, the second category, is looking more at those indirect connections with nature. Natural analogs tend to be static. We're looking at materials like wood or stone finishes, patterns, biomorphic something that's organic in shape or form, fractals. Then the third category is uh, nature of the space, which is really looking at the spatial experiences that we have in nature. So it's not about a thing. It's more about your perception of the space itself. So prospect, refuge, what are the characteristics of a refuge space, like a space that makes you feel like you're enclosed. And then the other ones are mystery, risk, and awe. And awe is the 15th pattern. Awe came along just recently, and it's not that it's a new pattern, it's that only in the rec- in recent years have we been able to assemble enough research to say this is a thing that we should be paying attention to.
0: You'll remember from part one that Jay also mentioned awe and the connection of water with awe. In the book Nature Inside, they define awe as defying an existing frame of reference and leading to a change in perception. Awe as a topic
3: uh, has been studied for probably hundreds or thousands of years. So it's not a new concept. It's understanding how it affects us, like what's going on chemically in our bodies that we respond to an awe experience.
0: Now turning to water specifically, let's apply what we learned about Blue Mind in part one with what research tells us about biophilic design. And for Katie, water is a favorite.
3: I actually started my career wanting to focus on water, but I was thinking of it as a natural resource management, you know, in natural resource management. I never thought I would be focused on it in um, health and well being, um, in like indoors and building performance. So it's, it's a cool way to loop back to it. Water actually has these health impacts. I think we tend to focus we getting rid of water in buildings. And I understand that water is. And it can be a challenge. There's a lot of concern about leaks and damage. And that conversation comes up every time. The key issue is that it's not about how much water. The architect will come up with this beautiful waterfall, like two-story waterfall of the building. It's fantastic. But then the cost implications and maintenance implications come in and the waterfall gets smaller and smaller. And then they're like, you know what, we just shouldn't do it. But the reality is that you don't actually need large installations. And that's true for most biophilic design patterns. They don't need to be big and monumental. Um, it's the quality of the application and how many people have access to it and what they're doing while accessing that experience. That's when it's going to have the greatest health impact. With the respect to water. A small water fountain even if it's enclosed but a small water fountain that has really good sound if acoustic quality is there and you can maybe touch it or at least the perception of being able to touch it because it's close enough you have that multi-sensory experience going on that has a positive impact on the psychoacoustics of the space it has a positive impact on mood self-esteem and your ability to focus, relax, stress reduction. And that's just water. Like
0: the other patterns also have their own health impacts. Katie challenges us to understand the science behind the beauty of biophilic design and perhaps to think beyond just plants. I think
3: there needs to be an effort to
0: understand
3: patterns in greater depth and not just a matter of does it have it or not? It's why are we including this pattern or that pattern? where are we putting it? Why are we putting it there? Who's benefiting from it? How long are they going to be there? Are they really going to get the benefit from it if it's in the entry corridor versus their office space? It's tricky and complex, but the more we try to actually understand the science behind it, I think the better the outcome's going to be. And so water is probably one of the ones that I would emphasize that the most with But We tend to gravitate towards what we can see and control and plants tend to be the number one choice. I think 90% of our perception is focused on what we can see, the visual, not necessarily what we hear or touch. And so in the industry now, there's a lot of defaulting to vegetation and I'm not against that. I love having plants in my space but it is just one piece of a larger puzzle. And sometimes it's not even appropriate. And that's okay too. You can have a very amazing biophilic
0: space that has no plants whatsoever. Here's
1: Hannah from Delta Faucet Company to close out the episode. I'm Hannah Inman, a product manager at Delta Faucet Company. At Delta Faucet Company, we're constantly looking for ways to bring water into interiors, to transform how people interact with water in meaningful ways. With our latest introduction, we're looking at water in its vapor form, steam. Using water to harness wellness in our daily lives supports physical, emotional, and mental health. Steam showers can be incorporated in both residential and commercial spaces and paired with aromatherapy chromotherapy, and audiotherapy for an ultimate relaxation experience. To get more insights on incorporating STEAM into your projects, visit pipelinebydfc.com. Blue Space is where we live creatively, in the environment in which we surround ourselves with ideas and innovations. We often get our best ideas when surrounded by water, and for most, that time is in the shower when in a state of relaxation embracing the sensory experience of the environment products and overall designs can change your physical emotional and mental state delta faucet company transforms your daily life through how you interact with your water from human first innovations to unforgettable design our faucets showerheads and beyond aim to make every moment you spend in your kitchen or bathroom one worth remembering
0: thanks for listening and learning with us today The Learning Objective is a Surround Podcast Network original production. Check out more shows from Surround at surroundpodcasts.com. This episode of The Learning Objective was produced and edited by Sandow Design Group. Special thanks to the podcast production team, Hannah Vitti, Wise Grisette, and Rachel Sinator. This episode has been approved for Continuing Education Unit. To earn your credit, visit the CU Events link in the podcast description, click Take Online Course, complete the quiz, and receive your certificate.